If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, or you can use your pew Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 this week. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the, same, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is God's word. You may recall from last week that we were in a, a chapter of Ephesians that's reflecting on what does it look like to live out our identities in Christ as a church, as a corporate body. Paul's already said in Ephesians that we are the body of Christ in the world. Uh, and so what does that look like? How do we live that out together? And last week we looked at the importance of Christian unity for the body of Christ for living out that life together, that we need to be unified both within churches and between churches. And Paul ended with that almost uh, hymn-like, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times Paul repeats the word one, you are, it's one, one, one. And Christian unity, the church being unified together, reflects God's own character, that he himself is united. It then seems to be a little bit at odds that we begin in verse 7, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. He repeats that same key word, one, but now it's each one. To each individual, there has been given various gifts of grace, spiritual gifts. And at first glance, it may seem that this diversity of gifts is at odds with Christian unity. But that is not, in fact, the case. The last two weeks, the passages we've looked at both drive home the point that although there is one God, included within this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within God himself, there is equally unity and diversity. Three persons in one God. And so it is to be in the church as well. Christian unity is not pure uh, homogeneity. It doesn't mean everything looks exactly the same, everything conforms, and we all dress exactly the same way and have the same gift and do the same thing. Rather, we are a diverse group of people who are drawn together to form a unity. And so we are to reflect God's own Trinitarian nature in that way. And so Paul in this passage argues that diversity is not opposed to Christian unity. So far from it, it actually enhances Christian unity. So let's look at these spiritual gifts 
Let's ask three questions this morning. Let's look at what is their source. Right, and we're following Paul right through the passage here. What is their source? What are some examples of these gifts? And what is the purpose of these gifts? First, what is the source of these spiritual gifts? The source of these gifts, or, or rather the answer, is that Christ gives gifts to his church. Christ gives gifts to his church. Verse 7 tells us as much. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We need to look at, at, at three things here in this verse. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. First, it's grace that's given to us. But this isn't what we sometimes call saving grace. It's not the grace of salvation, of being reconciled to God. Rather, it's what John Stott refers to as serving grace. Grace that is used uh, in service of the church. It's what Paul elsewhere calls spiritual gifts. The word for grace and the word for spiritual gift are closely related. And so uh, in Greek, it's very clear that he's talking about the same thing, these spiritual gifts. So there is a grace or a spiritual gift that is given. Second, it's given to each one of us. Each one of us. And it's not the same gift given to each one of us. There's a variety of gifts, but each of us is given at least one spiritual gift for the benefit of the church. Does that mean you? Yes, it means you. Every single one of us is given spiritual gifts. Uh, no one's excluded from that. And then the third thing to notice in this verse is that these gifts are given according to the measure of Christ's own gift. That is to say, it's not whole cloth uh, all the same undifferentiated grace that you're all just cut off a certain portion of. But it's saying according to Christ's measure, it's like a tailor-made suit or a tailored dress that's fit to you in particular. According to Christ's measurements that he's, he's measured out, he has his own idea for the role you should play in the church, and he's given you spiritual gifts to play that role. Christ gives gifts to his church. But who is this Christ that gives gifts to his church? Well, to answer that, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We've already read the front part, or the first half of that psalm this morning in our response uh, earlier, Psalm 68. And you'll recall that that psalm celebrates God who scatters his enemies in a great victory. He defeats them who then is the father to the fatherless. He protects widows. He gives a home to the homeless. He gives freedom to those who are enslaved. And this God then that we have read about in Psalm 68, uh, he comes like a victorious king on a triumphal entry into his city. And he marches through the city and everybody celebrates his victory. And he goes up to his mountain, to Mount Zion. He ascends and he is seated in his throne room in the temple, and he rules over all things. There's an interesting twist, though, in the way Paul quotes this verse. You may have noted when we read through Psalm 68, in verse 18 in Psalm 68, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he received gifts from men, from all sorts of men, uh, even his enemies. Well, if you look back at Psalm 68, 
Paul is reading this verse in the light of the larger context. And the very last verse of Psalm 68 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary. Okay, so he's, he's ascended up to Mount Zion. He's seated in the temple and he is awesome there. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So Paul's reading that verse 18 in light of the larger context where God not only receives gifts from people, like kings do, right? They get spoils from their victories. But he distributes those gifts back out to his people at the end of Psalm 68. And so Paul puts that together in the way he quotes this verse. But by quoting this verse or, and, and pointing back to Psalm 68, he's saying the Christ who gives gifts to his church, Jesus the Messiah, is the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus, the God who scatters enemies, who redeems his people from slavery. Jesus Christ on the cross is the one who has won a great victory for his people, a victory even greater than the Exodus. He has bought his people freedom from bondage to sin and death. He has made a way for God the Father to be the father of orphans and of all of us. He is God's protection for the widows and the vulnerable, those in need. His death makes a way for us to have a home, we who are homeless here in the world. And so Christ's victory is our only hope for freedom, salvation, safety, security, significance, and satisfaction. And before we say anything else this morning about spiritual gifts or all the rest of it, we have to be clear about this. Spiritual gifts are of no good unless you have a share in Christ's victory. Unless you say, yes, Christ victorious and ascended, seated on his throne, that Christ is my king, the rest of it's meaningless. Coming to church, trying to build up unity, it's all purposeless, apart from Christ's own work on the cross. And so friends, if you are here this morning and you haven't gotten straight on this yet, or you're joining us online and you're not clear about this yet, this is the most important point. Christ has won a great victory that has bought us freedom. And he ascends as our king. And you can have a share in that victory by saying, yes, Jesus Christ is my king as well. And if we start to get caught up in worrying about spiritual gifts and all that sort of thing, and we think we can move beyond Christ's victory, we've lost the plot. It is this victorious Christ who dies on the cross, who, who wins a victory in humility, who gives gifts to the church. And so spiritual gifts aren't about being some kind of Christian superhero flying about the place. No, they're about serving the church like Christ served. They're being used in humility as Christ's own victory is in humility. And so we need to, this is, this is the foundation. It's not something we, it's not the starting point that we move beyond, but it's the foundation that everything else builds on. And we've got to get straight on that. Well, Paul then moves on in verses 9 and 10 to a brief exposition of Psalm 68 and especially of verse 18. He says, what does it mean he ascended, but that he also descended into lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all things. Well, Paul tries to clarify what this psalm means, but unfortunately, these are probably the most difficult verses in the whole book to know exactly what he's trying to say. One historic view that goes back to John Chrysostom in the early church is that, that what Paul is referring to here is Christ's descent into Hades 
at his death and then his ascension after that. Well, since Paul nowhere else refers to Hades or hell in the book of Ephesians, that seems to me to be an unlikely reading. The other views then, uh, John Calvin, for example, uh, champions the second view, that the descent is Christ's incarnation, that he descends into the world, and his ascent is his return to heaven after his resurrection. The third view is that Christ, and, and, and there's ambiguity of, of descent and ascent, which one comes first. Uh, in terms of the language here, the translations have to resolve that, but there is some ambiguity. The third option is that Christ ascends after his resurrection, and then he descends at the day of Pentecost in his Holy Spirit that he gives to his church. Well, I'm not quite sure what to say about these options. Both of the latter two seem plausible uh, readings of the text. We, both, we know both those are true things to say about Christ on the basis of other passages. He did descend into the world in his incarnation. He also descended in his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so I don't think we need to split hairs about which one Paul means here. Let's continue then following Paul's argument. He next provides some examples, some examples of these kinds of spiritual gifts. This brings us to our second point. Christ gives his church leaders. Christ gives his church leaders. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Notice first that the object, what he's giving, is the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He gives them as gifts to the church. Christ gives his church leaders. But this certainly is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. We know that because in the New Testament, there are five different passages where there's these sorts of lists of gifts laid out. And if you add all those together, there's 19 or 20 different gifts referred to. And it's probable that those, none of those are intended to be an exhaustive list. Rather, they're indicative. They suggest, yeah, there's all sorts of spiritual gifts like these things. I think Paul picks these five gifts uh, as an illustration, these five gifts listed in verse 11, as an illustration because they show clearly how diverse gifts together contribute to the unity of the church. The individuals are given for the church. Let's look at each of these five briefly. First, Christ gave apostles to the church. The word apostle uh, is used in a number of senses in the New Testament. Uh, the word literally means one who is sent. And so Jesus, for example, says the one who is sent is not greater than the one who sends. And in that sense, he's referring, or in that passage, he's referring to all Christians as being ones who are sent. So all Christians are apostles in a sense, were sent out by Christ. Uh, in another sense, uh, this, people are called apostles who carry messages and letters back and forth between churches, that they're sent from one church to another. And so perhaps even the book of Ephesians was carried by one of these sorts of apostles, one who's sent bearing the letter. But the most familiar sense is Jesus' 12 apostles, these 12 individuals who were chosen by Jesus himself, who were his authorized representatives, who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and uh, who the church is built on. Now, some Christian traditions really emphasize the importance of an apostolic succession. And yet, strictly speaking, by definition, no later minister, bishop, priest, even the pope, is an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. And so, in the strict sense, there can be no apostles 
subsequent to the original 12. Uh, And so a church is apostolic when it submits to the authority of the apostles, which is recorded for us in the New Testament. They've recorded their eyewitness accounts and their authoritative teaching, and so that is how our church is built up by the apostles. Likewise, prophets are those who say, thus saith the Lord, who authoritatively declare God's word to God's people. And in that sense, again, there can be no prophets today. Scripture has been completed and closed, and so there's not a bunch of blank pages at the end of your Bible to paste new prophecies in, uh, new direct words from God. Nevertheless, there are ministries that can be characterized as apostolic or prophetic, ministries that expound God's word and apply it in certain situations in a particularly penetrating manner. Paul moves on to a third gift to the church, the evangelists. This title is only used three times in the New Testament, here and then to refer to Philip and Timothy. But of course, the verb evangelize is used frequently. It means to bear the good news, to tell others the good news. Now, all Christians are called to bear witness to the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, is the victorious king. And so what does it mean to be, have this gift of being an evangelist, per se, or, or, or an evangelist being given as a gift to the church? It seems to refer to individuals who, in, in, in special ways, are able to clearly and persuasively proclaim the good news. Um, I think a, a couple years ago, I was visiting an older gentleman in our congregation who was in the hospital, and I asked him how he was doing, and he kind of updated me on his medical situation while, while he was there in the hospital. Uh, but then he said, uh, but I've had the opportunity to tell some people here about Jesus. And so even you know, post-heart attack, being in the hospital and recovering from that, he's looking for opportunities to uh, tell people about Jesus. And I think that probably is an individual who Paul would say, yeah, that is an evangelist uh, who's been given to your church, who is, who is so persuasive and, and looking for opportunities and sees opportunities where the rest of us don't to share the good news. Then Paul talks about pastors and teachers, and he links these together. They share a definite article there, the pastors and teachers. NIV says uh, pastors Other translations say pastors, but the word is literally shepherds. And in fact, this is where we get our word pastor from. A pastor is nothing but a shepherd. And a shepherd leads, provides for, defends, and feeds their flock. Well, how do you feed a flock of Christians? By teaching them. By feeding them God's word. By expounding God's word, telling them about God's word. By teaching. And so pastors and teachers are linked together. It does seem like there's some kind of a distinction here, that there's some individuals who shepherd the congregation, uh, like in our, our situation, our elders shepherd the congregation, but not all of our elders are called to teach on a regular basis uh, in this sort of capacity like I'm doing this morning. Um, before we move on, I just want to make a brief comment on ordination. In our church tradition, um, typically our elders, our shepherds, and our pastors are ordained, and that's right and good. And when we're selecting elders and ministers, we should look for people who have gifts that make them good shepherds and make them good teachers. They should be skilled in those areas because that's the work they're called to do. But we should not assume that only the ordained people in our church have the gifts of shepherding and teaching. 
there's lots of gifted shepherds and teachers in our congregation who have never served as an elder. Likewise, we should not assume that everyone who has these gifts should therefore automatically be ordained. That could also lead to a mess. There's people who are great at shepherding, uh, but are not called to serve on the council, for example. Well, what is the purpose of these gifts that Christ has given to the church? In particular, what's the purpose of these types of leaders that Christ has given to the church? Let's follow Paul's argument in verse 12, and we see that, third, Christ's gifts are for the work of ministry. Christ's gifts are for the work of ministry. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, there is a fateful comma in the history of English translations of the Bible. And with these different translations, there's an accompanying vision for the church. If you look back at the New King James, or, or, or sorry, the King James Version, for example, this uh, one of the oldest English translations of the Bible, you would read, he gave uh, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for building up the body of Christ. And on that view, the King James view and, and, and other translations that follow in that, and then this also vision for the church that goes with it, the shepherds and teachers are the ones who do, who equip saints, build up saints. They're the ones who do the work of ministry, and they're the ones who build up the body of Christ. It's all the work of shepherds and teachers. Uh, and on this view, then, the clergy do the ministry, and the laity receive the ministry. It's a very transactional relationship. The elders and ministries do all this work, and the congregation in the pews, they get to receive all of that. But the correct translation is almost certainly the way newer translations, such as the NIV and ESV, translate it. Christ gives shepherds and teachers to equip the saints so that they, that is the saints, can do the work of ministry and so build up the body of Christ. It's almost certainly the correct translation. And with it comes a different vision for the church, a vision that uh, John Stott calls every member ministry, that every member of the church is called to do the work of ministry. And the role of shepherds and teachers is to equip every member of the church for the work of ministry. And this view fits quite well with Paul's language here, that a, a, a pastor is a shepherd. After all, the point of a shepherd is not the shepherd himself, but the sheep. The product that shepherding produces is wool and meat. The sheep is the point of the shepherd. You can have sheep without shepherd. There's wild sheep. But you can't have a shepherd without sheep. It's no good. It's not a viable career. You have to have the sheep. That's the point. The sheep are productive. And likewise in the church. The point of church is not the minister. Uh, what I'm doing this morning is not a boring performance that you all get to come and see. The point of the church is the people. It's the congregation as a whole. And the work that I'm doing this morning, the work that I do tonight in the evening teaching, the work that our elders do, is to equip everyone in the congregation so that they can engage in the work of ministry. So ministry shouldn't be hoarded by the pastor or the elders. In that case, when the minister is hoarding all the work of ministry, 
the church atrophies. It's like muscles that are unused. It withers. Uh, it's, it's unhealthily thin. It doesn't have the weight it needs. Now, to say every member ministry is the model Paul sets before us does not mean that everybody needs to have a spot on the duty roster where their name appears. That's not what it means. It's not that you all have to be checked into some box that the church organizes. After all, most of the work of ministry of the church takes place outside of the church. It can look like all sorts of things. Volunteering in a soup kitchen, care for the elderly, uh, care for our parents, care for our elderly neighbors, raising covenant children, uh, working with integrity and love at your job. Uh, maybe you work in a job where most people cut corners and it's just standard industry practice and yet you work with integrity. Uh, that is a ministry. Maybe it means reading the Bible with a new Christian or a non-Christian, just one-on-one -on -one meeting up and reading through the Bible together. Maybe it means meeting together in a small prayer group to pray uh, for the church and for the community. All those are ministries of the church, but they're not in the church. It doesn't show up on our duty roster. My mother-in-law was uh, not a minister in the sense of being ordained, and yet she had a very profound ministry of pastoral care, shepherding especially young mothers and struggling marriages. Uh, for years, she spent time shepherding young struggling mothers and, and struggling marriages. And that's a, a very important and profound ministry of the church. And yet it doesn't show up on our annual reports at our congregational meeting. So every member ministry doesn't mean everybody has a title here in the congregation. Nevertheless, in a healthy church that is practicing this vision that Paul has set before our eyes, we should see a plurality of elders and teachers who together equip a variety of people for ministry inside the church. We should see all sorts of people involved in organizing the church, teaching Sunday school, leading music, picking hymns, serving on committees, writing liturgies, leading prayers in the congregation, perhaps even leading portions of the service. None of those require someone to be ordained. They're things that everybody could potentially be involved in. And so in a healthy church, we need to be seeing people equipped that they can be involved in that ministry in visible ways as well as in visible ways. So Christ gives these gifts of different leaders to his church to equip the saints, that is the Christians in the church, for the work of ministry. But then Paul concludes the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose is for building up the body of Christ. Here we return to where we began. Christ gives the gifts, and the gifts ultimately are for building up Christ's own body. Christ gives diverse gifts to all sorts of people, and yet those diverse gifts together should build up the body as a unified whole. The gifts are from Christ and for his service. Building up the body, growing the body, it, does, it, means, it means growth Numerically, it means more people are being brought in to learn about Christ's victory. More people uh, are, are, are finding healing and a home who are homeless, who are finding God to be their father, who are fatherless. But it also means growing in maturity. It means the body is built up, that people are becoming more Christ-like in their behavior. It means they understand the gospel and its implications more than they have before. The church is, by definition, a rescue operation. It's a place set up to bring in wounded, hurt people, 
people who are struggling with sin and destructive patterns in their life. So it's a rescue operation. And there's always going to be hurt, broken, immature, sinful people in the church. That's what it's for. But this vision Paul sets before our eyes is that as people are brought into this church, hurt, broken, struggling with sin, uh, they are helped. And then they're taught first aid so that they can help others who are being brought in. So it's a rescue operation where everyone who is treated is also taught first aid and sent back out into the triage. Friends, Christ gives gifts to his church, to each one of us, diverse gifts. It's like putting together a puzzle that we each have one piece of. The puzzle's not complete without each member, each individual. One type of gift is leaders that Christ gives to the church, but those leaders are not the point of a church. The leaders are to help lead and shepherd the church and equip the church so that the church as a whole, we can each bring our piece of the puzzle together. The purpose of these gifts are so that we can all be engaged in the work of ministry. And so let us use our gifts, the gifts the victorious Christ has given us for his glory. Let us not be timid. Christ has gifted you in particular with gifts that no one else in this church has perhaps. Let us not be complacent. Christ doesn't waste his gifts. You are essential. Let us set about the work of proclaiming Christ's victory to a hurting, broken world and using the gifts that he has given us, that he has won in his victory, to build up his body. Let us pray. Christ Jesus, we see set before us this morning uh, a picture of you as a victorious king who has won our freedom, and for that we are thankful. But we also see a picture set before our eyes of you as a generous king, a king who wins spoils and, and, and wins prizes in his victory, and yet doesn't hoard them in a treasure room, but distributes them generously throughout your body throughout your church. Let us too, Lord, be generous with the gifts that you have given us. Let us use our gifts in service of others. Let us not use our gifts in a way that uh, lifts ourselves up, but in a way that lifts you up. Gracious Lord, we ask that we would be a church that practices every member ministry that we would be a church where people feel equipped and are in fact equipped so that they can do the work of ministry you have set before them. Let us be a church where people feel bold to be involved, even in visible ways, helping uh, with our worship and with our uh, ways of teaching and building up the body of Christ. Let us, Lord, never look down on others uh, because they have different gifts than us, but be thankful that you have given a diverse set of gifts to this congregation. Let us not look down on ourselves thinking that uh, others can do what you have called us to do better. That may be the case, but you have called us to do it and no one else. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, even this morning, you would be prompting us to seek out ways that we might use your gifts for the work of ministry. Amen.